You're listening to the City Lights Podcast. City Lights is a church located in Greenville, South Carolina, devoted to building family, blessing neighbors, and bringing good news to the nations. Thanks for joining us. Uh, as we are uh, passing through the plates, um, I will kind of just get us going here and set up in Genesis chapter 6. If you look at the screen behind me, uh, there are four segments to the book of Genesis, the creation, the fall, the rescue, and the redemption. And today marks the first time we'll be in the segment of the rescue. Um, back in Genesis 1, God created the heavens and the earth with his Ruah voice. He separated the skies from the heavens and the land from the sea. He separated the times and the seasons and the stars. And he created order and beauty out of chaos. And in his good world, he endeavored to share, not just hold and uh, draw attention and glory only to himself, but to share, share his goodness, share his glory with the creation. And so he called up upon covenant partners in his creation to be his images, his representatives. And so if you have ever seen like, like, a, like a, a temple, uh, if you've gone to a temple or seen one, maybe in, in India or something like that, or, or, or I've seen little red statues in Hong Kong, where I was born, um, they have statues that don't talk and don't move and don't have feelings and don't have uh, image bearing to them. Uh, this is God's uh, original design to be a temple. Eden was a temple. Uh, it no longer holds its full glory as its original intent once did, but when Eden was Eden, it was God's space and man's space overlapped, and in the middle of it was a statue, an icon, an idol. It was us. It was you and I, and we were the images. We were the ones that were going to represent in the middle of the temple. And so we, we had a decision in our choice, our dignity, to choose God's way or to take autonomy for ourselves, redefine evil and goodness for ourselves. And the chaos creature, the snake, moved his way into the order and the chaos and uh, invited us into that chaos. Um, Not calling it chaos, of course, calling it um, glory and saying that we could be gods with uh, the other gods. And so that was what happened when Adam and Eve took the apple and and they ate from it. And so what we've looked at from Genesis 4 actually three, all the way through Genesis 5, is a downward, uninterrupted spiral of chaos, of violence, of corruption. And in Genesis 6, what we'll see is kind of the the tipping point of that, Uh, the snowball effect, the uh, critical mass is going to come to a head, and that's going to result in something called the flood. And so we're going to talk about how this Genesis chapter 6 turns the page into God's Uh, fusing with human history, becoming uh, a covenant partner, a faithful covenant partner with a covenant family to restore and redeem his good world. How would you do that if you had blessings and curses like tangled like a fishing wire, you know, tangled up, blessings and curses and curses and blessings all tangled and meshed together? How would you be able to separate the two? How would you be able to separate the two? And the flood is the image of how that would work, how he would redeem a a, a covenant blessing uh, emerging out of the chaos um, curse waters. Uh, so I've been reading this book called The Tipping Point by, Mal- by Malcolm Gladwell. It came out in 2000. It's a tiny little book that's all about how the small things in life add up to become big things, to become tipping points. He talks about hush puppies. Uh, this screen on the, uh, behind me can remind us some of these in the 90s from the 94 hush puppy line, which actually only had 30,000 um, units that were somewhere in the middle of like Phoenix, Arizona or something, not, not selling anywhere in, in kind of a mom and pop store. 
And uh, what began to take place, sociologists kind of scratched their heads like the right cool kids in Boston kind of took hold of them. They became a trend. And before you knew it, they were selling out on every store in America over the, the course of a couple months. And, and this is the puzzle, right, of rapid change. I mean, there's slow and deliberate change, and then there's explosive combustible change. Another chapter that he talks about um, is... He talks about the crime waves in New York, in Brownstown, New York. He said that there were times in the early 90s when the lights would go out and the sun would set and it would sound like the war in Vietnam. There'd be so many gunshots and the police radars would come off the hook off of how much violence was going on in Brownstown, New York. And then over the just course of a couple of months, a couple of the right elements came together. They snowballed. They became a critical mass point that turned the, the tide so that there was a, a crime rate dropage of 50%. Um, in, in Brownstown, New York. And, and, and then lastly, he talks about this, this outbreak of, of STDs. And here's this uh, in Philadelphia, or actually, no, in, ba- in Baltimore, rather, uh, on the screen here, uh, jumped a sharp 500% in, in a year uh, because of the combination, the accumulation of police changes and hospital changes and policy changes and bureaucracy all changed right at the correct tipping point to cause this thing to happen. And, and so this is exactly, this is exactly what the flood represents in the, in the Bible story. I have this curtain in my house and I tell the kids to not pull on the curtain because the curtain is not, you know, a trapeze. They think that it's, you know, a, a pirate rope or something to swim across and they're, they're, they don't get it in their head. It just looks like a toy. I understand. They just see it in a certain way. They got kid eyes as opposed to grown up boring eyes. And they, they swing on it because you tell them not to swing on it because it looks too fun and they just swing on it and they pull on it and they pull on it and after a while... They pull on it. They pull, the, they pull the, the curtain completely off of the drywall because the mollies there are not meant to hold the 40-pound kid that's trying to swing on it. And so this is, this is what's actually happened in creation is that when God handed over the authority and the choice and the ability to choose to the humans, they decided to partner with the chaos. And, and, and they, they actually served to unravel the very blessing of God in the earth. They, be, they were actually able to, to pull on the curtain so, so much and so hard that there was a tipping point. There was a chaos point in which the beginning of the story, if you guys remember, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God, the Ruah, he hovered over the waters of the deep. Tohu vavohu, the, the idea of wild and waste from way back in whenever we started in, in, um, in uh, the beginning of the fall of this series, there was this hovered water. That was the chaos. Remember, that's the picture of biblical chaos. It's just water. And so what emerged out of that water was, was order and, and beauty and benefit for man. And, and what, what has happened is that they've pulled and tugged on the, on, the, on the cords, on the curtains of justice so long and so hard for, thousands, for a thousand years without stopping. And there was uninterrupted just sin and violence and corruption and chaos that they actually pulled on the very foundations of justice in the earth. And the whole thing spiraled out of control and caused the flood to encroach. And you'll see some of the language is almost decreating the world, like Genesis 1 backwards. Remember the Coldplay video when the whole video goes backwards and it goes back to the start? That's what's happened here. They've pulled on it so much, they've regressed the creation to decreate itself to become back to the original tohu vavohu, the original chaos form. And we'll end the story there in the next two weeks of, of the ark that's just kind of floating there, and that's the picture that we'll land on in, the, this, in this rescue. This is where it starts in Genesis 6, verse 1. It says, uh, when the human beings began to increase in number on the earth and the daughters were born to them. So that's the Genesis 1 blessing. They are still, they are still multiplying. They are still, um, they are still being fruitful in number. Uh, then the question becomes for the reader, will they rule well? Will they subdue well? Will they do the Genesis 1 commandment that, that God had commanded? And we'll see that that is, that is absolutely not the case. In verse 2, it says, the sons of God saw that the daughters of humans were beautiful. 
They married any of them that they chose. And then the Lord said, my ruah, my spirit, will no longer contend with the humans forever, for they are mortal. And their days will be 120 years. And the Nephilim were on the earth in those days. And also afterwards, when the sons of God went to the daughters of humans and had children by them, they were hearers of old and men of renown. So just something to spice up your Sunday morning this morning. Uh, you can check in Jude and in First Peter and many biblical scholars and commentaries. Uh, the most common interpretation of these characters that emerge, the sons of God, are not actually human but spiritual. Um, that in the heavens, there's more than, than just the capital E, Elohim. There are, there are under, under gods. There are, so to speak, uh, angels and, and, and principalities and rulers and, and council because God is a sharing ruler. And even in the book of Job, you can see a council, a table, a discussion that goes on about what to do with the case of Job. Can't get into it today, but, but these were called sons of God. They're the committee. They're the cabinet of God. And they talk to God. And some of them rebelled against God. Just as the same time as, as men was rebelling against God, there were spiritual beings that rebelled against God and they dropped out of heaven and fell to the earth and began to merge and tempt and, and rule and, and pursue and, 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 and hurt and harm the humanity. And, and so what you, what you see in this picture, it says the sons of God have, have drifted down from heaven and pursued, they saw beautiful, just like Eve saw the fruit was beautiful. They pursued the women, the daughters of God, and they went into the daughters of God, probably trying to uh, infect the, the, the seed of the woman to try and prevent for the promise of God, the, the, the seed of the woman to come and step on the head of the snake. They wanted to mitigate that. They wanted to get in the way of that and cancel that. And so they impregnated these, these daughters of, of God. And so what you have is a dual uh, rebellion. You have, a, you have a, a, an earthling rebellion that's trying to reach up above God and take control and authority above him. And then you have gods that are with uh, Elohim dropping to the earth to, for, to foment a rebellion, a spiritual and earthly rebellion against God. And this is all to illustrate exactly how bad things have gotten uh, just before the flood. Verse five, the Lord saw. You guys remember in Genesis one, what happens when the Lord saw anything in Genesis one before the curse? He saw that it was what? that it was good, that it was tov. And then he blessed it. That was, that was it was obvious. It was, it was, of course, the natural conclusion that, that if God saw something that he made, that it would be good. But now he sees what man has made. Notice what it says. He saw how great the wickedness was of man, how the raw of man had exposed all over the earth. The human race had become, um, how wickedness, excuse me, the human race had become on the earth and every inclination of the thoughts and the hearts of a man was only evil all the time. It says the Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth and his heart was deeply grieved. It was deeply troubled. And so the Lord said, I will wipe from the face of the earth the human race I have created and with all the animals and the birds and the creatures that move along the ground for I regret that I have made them. So you can sort of see a backwards decreation going on here. The list of creatures and all the animals have become undone. They've become unraveled in, in the Genesis 3 curse. And it's a direct link to the Genesis 1 blessing in reverse. It was, he was seeing goodness. He was seeing goodness. He was blessing it. And now he's no longer seeing goodness. He's seeing a wickedness unfold. And there's two pivotal and somewhat troublesome words there about the character of God we've got to look at. And the first is the word regret. Because we can't imagine God repenting of anything. Not that he's stubborn or proud, prideful, but just that he's omniscient and omnipotent and he can't do something that he would go back on. So the word regret is an English word that doesn't really serve us the right way. 
Regret is, is not something like um, he woke up one day and was in a foul mood. Regret is the idea of, of a balanced ledger. There's a balanced ledger. That, like, like it used to be, we used to have a chairman of the Federal Reserve. He'd have to balance the Federal Reserve system for our national economy. And you have a checkbook that needs balanced every day, right? And if you have a, a husband, let's say, who spends more than you make, then the checkbook becomes unbalanced and that becomes a problem that causes a little bit of a flood chaos in the house, I suppose. And so, and so if you make you know, $5,000 a month and you spend $10,000 a month, what the word there is you would regret that, that debit. The credits have not equaled the debits. And God is a just God. He is, he is the judge, but he's also the father. And this is where the tension comes in here with the second word there with grieve. But he has an unbalanced ledger in humanity. He regrets that. He regrets that. He, he notices, he audits the humanity and, and the justice and the goodness. And he sees this isn't adding up right. This is creating a bubble that will lead to a, a crash market stock, so to speak, an ethical crash. He sees it ahead of time. And what does he say? He grieves that thing because he's a judge and he's a father. So maybe this is the picture. If you've, if you've ever had any experience before, um, maybe it's a family member, a friend, somebody that you've seen in relationship, an indirect relationship, where, where a family member becomes trapped and imprisoned to addiction and substance. This is the picture. Because every, every, every father, every mother, every husband, every wife, every child, every child, they want, they want peace in their home. This is what we all want. We long for this, especially if you're the father in the situation, you want to make sure that there's peace in the home and you want to make sure that your children are blessed. But in a chaos world, in a sin world, in a narrative that's spiraling out of control, that's not always in our hands, is it? And so, and so we come to this point with family members that have addicted behavior, um, pedophilia, pedophilia behavior, that, that have abusive behavior, that have substance problems, and it comes to a pivotal decision that some of us, and I hope that not a lot of us have to make, but we have to make this decision. At some point, me opening the door doesn't uh, help them, and it also begins to unravel the peace within the home. This is, a, this is an awful, awful, maybe one of the most hard decisions for a parent to have to decide to close the door to protect the blessing within the house, but it is nonetheless a decision that has to be made sometimes, is that letting that person in is not going to help them, and it's not going to help us. And so there has to be a door that's closed. This is the grieving process that God goes through. He already knows the hearts of man and the wickedness that's coming. And he knows that the ledger is not going to be balanced. And so he has to serve as both the judge and the policeman. And he has to serve as the parent. As the parent, at least we have the mercy to close the door and hope that justice and mercy finds them through other channels. But God closes the door. He knows that there is no one outside of his, his reach that can save that person. That's the grief he experiences as a parent. And so the flood is the door closing. It's only natural what would happen if, if the creation becomes disconnected and the Ruah breath would be returned. He says, I cannot, I cannot strive with man anymore. The breath is going in a direction. Strive means going straight. And the other line is diverge crooked and it can't strive with him more than 120 years and the breath will return. And so the very, the very pillars of the, of the creation are shaking, they're trembling, they're a dam under distress and it's only a, moment, a matter of time before, before the flood ensues says, but Noah finds favor and other renditions, if it's in your Bible, and grace. That word actually has the same consonants as Noah's name, the same exact consonants. His name actually echoes the word grace and favor. That he finds favor in God's eyes. He finds grace in God's eyes. He finds, he finds pleasure. He finds, uh, he finds a gift from God. 
he, he understands somehow how to, like the way Enoch did, how to reposition himself, his attitude, his heart, his thoughts. He, he's able to find grace in the middle of all this confusion. And, and like Enoch is, is, is a model, is a path somehow to get the tree of life in the middle of the curse and death. Return to the tree of life. And this is what it says about him. It says, this is the account of Noah and his family. Noah was a righteous man. He was blameless among the people of his time. And he walked faithfully with God. And Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. So let's pay attention to the three superlatives of Noah's, Noah's name, of his character. It says about Noah that number one, he was righteous. Number two, he was blameless. And number three, he walked with God, the same way that Enoch walked with God. This is exact contrast and juxtaposition to what God says about his entire generation. The generation, it says, is corrupt. It does not walk with God. It is not righteous. The generation is violent. It is not upright. It is not blameless. And the generation is crooked. It doesn't walk with God. So this is the exact opposite. His name means rest. The consonants of his name are the same as grace. And he exists, as it said in Genesis 5, when we read through the timeline and the genealogy, his, his name is to bring a rest and a grace to the earth again. He is bringing a rest and a comfort to not only God, but man, and restore home to uh, this, this, this tumultuous place. And so this is what we need to see uh, about Noah. There's a couple of things, and this will be on the next slide here, is that, uh, number one, is that Noah is not a very dimensional character in the story, if you read through it. He doesn't ever talk. Um, he kind of is... Um, he, he, he is a, he's a subject, he's a thing within the story to help the story propel forward. He's an object of God's grace. He's like, he's like Adam. Adam's not talking. Adam is just being formed and breathed into. And that's what Noah's like. Two, we need to understand that Noah, um, Noah is the point of view reference of the whole story from here on out. That when we're, when we're getting on the boat and building the boat and following God's commands on the boat, we're not hearing about the people that are in the water. We're not hearing about the animals. We're not hearing about the other stories that are going on. We're only hearing his story, which shows us the purpose of the story, which is this. The purpose of the story is actually not to try and understand the curse as best we can or to understand Noah as a person, but to understand the subject of the story, which is grace and our relationship to it. If you remember, the beginning of the fall started with Cain and Abel, and we were only given the point of view and reference of the one being tempted. It was a warning story, a cautionary tale. Don't do as Cain did, because the, the enemy waits like, a, like an animal, and he will jump on you. He will rule over you. Now we are put in the, in the shoes and, and in the point of view of the character Noah, who has an opportunity to walk with God, and it's asking us, what will you do? What will you do? What will you do with the grace of God in your life? How will you respond to, to the promise of Genesis 3.15 that God will provide rescue through the line of the seed of the woman? What will you do with the fact that all the lineage of, of man, that Enoch was the one that walked with God and somehow got back to the tree of life? What will you do with this promise? What will you do with this precedent? What will you do with this story? It becomes the question for the reader. All right, it says, verse 11, the earth was corrupt in God's sight and was full of violence. So he's repeating this back to Noah. In verse 12, God saw how corrupt the earth had become and all the people on earth had corrupted their ways. So God said to Noah, I'm going to put an end to all people and the earth is filled with violence because of them. I'm surely going to destroy both of them. 
So there's an important wordplay there between corrupt and destroy. They're actually the same idea. God is saying that the world has become so corrupted that I am going to partner with that corruption and corrupt it. Another way of saying that is the world has become so self-destroyed, I'm going to partner with that destruction and destroy it. And this is an important theological concept, something maybe to wrestle with on your own far too long to talk about today. But this is the nature of of the human heart of Pharaoh, right? That in 10 plagues, there were five of them that says that Pharaoh hardens his heart. And then this really bleak statement that is made within the Bible that talks about the nature of the human heart, that God partners with the hardening of Pharaoh's heart and allows his heart to become hard and maybe even extends to harden it further. This is the nature that we choose, but God chooses as well. We choose and he chooses. He chooses us, but we choose him back. And there is, there is choice and sovereignty in the same place. We have to wrestle with that fact. But that's exactly what it's saying is that, is that, that man in his own choice and authority, that God is sovereign, but he gives authority. He, he, he shares, it's his choice to do so. And he shares his authority with man because he, he would rather have love than slavery. He would rather have love than robots. And he allows for a choice. And what's happened here is the people have chosen corruption. And so God has, allowed them to have it. And that's exactly what happens in our life is that we choose our corruption and then our circumstances and the curse and the chaos is, is certainly willing to give it to us. And then God will, in effect, destroy the self-destroyed. This is exactly what the theology is saying. All right, so then it comes uh, to the promissory part, verse 17. I'm going to bring floodwaters on the earth to destroy all of life under the heavens. Every creature that has breath on life on it, breath of life in it, everything on the earth will perish. But I will establish my covenant. This word will be something we will talk about for the rest of the year. Covenant will be, will be the, the, the primary vehicle, the only principal vehicle, by the way, he's going to restore blessing, not just kind of rain it upon everybody at all different times. He's going to choose and set apart a covenant family to be the royal priesthood in the middle of the curse. And that's exactly what this ark is going to represent, a blessing floating on the waves of the curse. That's exactly what this is going to show us. He says, you will enter the ark and you and your sons and your wife and your son's wives with you. You are to bring the ark to living creatures, male and female. Very Genesis 1 here. Two, he created the male and female like them in their kind. This is Genesis 1, a recreation. So there's a creation, a decreation, and a recreation. We started from chaos. We go into shalom. It goes into chaos. And then he's instituting shalom again on this boat. And then it says, two of every kind of bird, two of every kind of animal, every kind of creature that moves along the ground will come to you and be kept alive. It will restore the blessing. It will hold a remnant of the blessing. Verse 21, you are to take every kind of food that is eaten and store it away. So there's food that you would need for blessing as well. And you're going to store it away and eat it as food. And then verse 22, faith, which activates this grace, Noah did everything that God had commanded him to do. And so if you've ever, uh, anybody here ever done like a, got real excited in January and just told yourself, I'm going to like read the Bible through the year. Have you ever done this? Straight through, which means like five chapters of Leviticus, like a day, right? And uh, usually you're trucking along and you're like, Genesis, okay, that's cool. And you get through and Abraham, he's really fun to read. And Joseph is such a great story. And then what happens right around February, have you guys ever done this before? I just kind of hit a brick wall. Anybody? No, just me. You get into those chapters, like 10% of this. Now we're talking about boiling goats and milk and all this kind of stuff and where, you know, where are we here? There's all this weird blood and the cubits and how many cubits high and the cubits left and the cubits right. And you're just kind of lost and you're just like, all right, I'll try next year. You ever, nobody ever done that before? So, so that's what's going on here is you're going to see some very direct instructions given to Noah about not only to build the boat, but how to build it. And why is that? 
Because the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, are the same story. They're one story. They're not divided into chapters. I mean, they, they are divided in different scrolls and there is a designation, but they're meant to be read as like a Star Wars, you know, five-part thing. And the, the reader is telling you that what Noah's doing is the exact same thing as Aaron is doing. He's building a temple in a boat and it's carrying the presence of God on the ocean. So much so, I don't think I sent it to the slides, but I'll read it. This is what is the culmination of this boat. It's in, in chapter 7 for next week, verse 17. It says, For 40 days and 40 nights the flood kept coming on the earth, and as the waters increased, they lifted the ark high above the earth. you got this boat. It's on this chaos water. And the waters rose and increased greatly on the earth. And listen to what it says. And it says, The ark floated on the surface of the water. Remember who hovered over the surface of the water. The ark was, was where the presence of God God's space and man's space could dwell completely because of the obedience of Noah. You had an Eden floating on the water. That's exactly what that was. It was, an inca- it was a capsule of, of grace. It was a capsule of promise. It was a capsule of blessing. It was the Genesis 1 picture on a boat in the middle of the water. No rudder. Just chilling out there. Waiting on God. 40 days and 40 nights. Trusting God. It was grace and faith. It was the picture of that boat that we're left with. And that is the picture that we'll pause here and pick up next time for the story. That is the picture of your and my, yours and my life. Uh, I have this, this app. It's called The Wonder List. Me and Kyra sat down and looked at it. I have 106 things on my wonder list. Um, my Kyra's credit card, it's missing. We got to go call, get it, get it stopped and picked up again. I, I've, got, I've got a sprinkler system. I ran over the sprinklers with my lawnmower. They just shoot straight up like geysers. All over, all over my yard. I tried to fix one and I broke the, broke the other one. They all shoot out like little, little things. I, I got all of my, all, listen, five of five of my fans have balloon ribbons tied to the top of them. All of them because the balloons all move up and it's just the chaos. It's just how, that's how it works. That's how, this is how, this is how life, I, I've got so many, I've got leaves I've got more leaves in my garage than outside of my garage. I'll be honest. I've got, got, I've got some mold problems in the shower. They never, it just, it, it never stops. I've got a fig tree that grows sideways. Who has a fig tree that grows sideways? YouTube says I have to drill a hole in it and put kerosene. I, see when a problem, like you solve it and it makes the problem worse. I've got to put kerosene in the, trunk of my fig tree. You know what I'm saying? Like life has a lot of chaos to it, does it not? It's constant. It's, con- it's constant issues and problems and, and practices to take kids to and, and little creative spaces that your heart wants to go and build out and relationships that you need to tend to and, and bills that need to get paid. I mean, it's an absorbent amount of chaos around us. And, it, and that's why we connect with this story even thousands of years later because this is what life's like. We're on our little boat and we just have buckets and we're just constantly trying to get the chaos out of our life. Just these little projects, these little creation projects, some of them good, some of them bad. There are 106 little problems that all exist in our life. And then some of us have real problems, right? Like this Bible is not written for us to have cute little speeches on Sunday. This Bible is written for people on their hospital bed. This Bible is written for people in foxholes somewhere in some war. This Bible is written for dads who don't know where their kids are. This Bible is not written for people that are having a great life. 
This Bible is written for people in a boat that don't know if they're going to make it. So it speaks to us there. It speaks to us in this place. And some of us have, 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 have real issues. Like I mean, we have kids that are dating people that don't honor them. And it breaks our heart. We don't know what to do about that. We have, I, I, my, my pastor growing up is, is stage four cancer currently, pancreatic cancer. And he's walking through life. And what do you do with that? It's cruel, isn't it? It's cruel. You go through and you do the right things and you're faithful and you walk and you take the steps and then you come to it and then there's this cruel flood that hits you. There's this chaos in this world that just becomes too big for you. And we like to think that it's all about positivity. If you tell the people the right thing and the right speech and the right sermon, everything's okay. But some people have some very complex issues in their life. It's too much. The waves are too much. The chaos is too much. It's flooding everywhere. And that's why this story speaks to every one of us. It speaks to all cultures. Because, because, because this, is the, this is the picture. It's this... It's this consuming kind of chaos that, 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 that surrounds us. And, 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 so, and so this is the statement that I would, that I would make about this. Actually, let me, let me talk for a second before I get the sermon on sentence there. The, the, the picture of the chaotic waters is, is something that is so important. As we talked about, as I was just joking around over there about the wonderless and these things, that, that, that chaos thing it's an Old and New Testament concept, and it's everywhere. It started at the very beginning on page one. It is the deep. It is the hubbard of the deep. Is that chaos, Leviathan thing that exists in Genesis 1, and it follows the trail through the flood. It's out of the Nile that Moses has taken up the savior of the Israelite people in Egypt. It's out of the water that salvation comes. We follow that into the Red Sea. This is important. Chaotic waters is, is inseparable for the Jewish mind from the discussion about who is God. He's the one that made and controls the waters. And so, so there it is. So you're walking through and the sea becomes this curse that traps them against the Egyptians until God gets involved and splits it. See how that works? See how, see how the, the water... The water propels the salvation story forward. It's imperative the water exists, and it's super scary. I don't know if you've ever been to the beach before in the middle of the night. It's bigger than we are, last time I checked. And the thing that encapsulates, that, 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 that trapped them against the Egyptians splits. They walk through it, and the water falls down on their enemies, killing them, the enemies, and saving the Israelites. So, that, so the waves, the chaotic waters, were actually something that came to curse them and ended up giving them into the blessing. And Jesus, when, when he was born, it was prophesied that he would come out of Egypt. And so, because he was chased and pursued by Herod and, and, the, and the authority lines and the king of the day, they went to Egypt and then came out of Egypt and Jesus was baptized out of the water. And, and Jesus, in several times, has, has these moments on the boat where he commands the waves and he was doing nothing short of declaring himself the Messiah and God himself when he declared those waves because the Jews knew when they saw those chaotic waters... They knew that the only one that could save them from it was God. The only one that could command the storms was God. The only one that used chaotic waters in the story was the one who formed the flood at the very beginning. Think about this with me as a closing statement, and I'll get into a, a question of the day. First, the flood is the decreation story cultivating the new creation promise that God's grace is activated through faith. The chaos waters of life they are the blessing and the curse at the same time. They come to destroy us, but by grace through faith, they actually save us. 
The chaos waters were the things that threatened the Israelites, but then drowned the Egyptians. The things that was threatening the disciples, but then drowned the, the pigs that were occupied by the demons. The chaos waters was a curse that was turned into a blessing that led to salvation in every single one of the stories. The chaos waters of life come to destroy us, but they also come to save us at the same time in the hands of God. The Bible, the biblical metaphor of chaos waters, tohu vavohu at the beginning, the flood, the Red Sea, the Jordan River with Joshua, the boats, the storms, etc. They are always tipping points for biblical characters to make the imperative decision to trust or die. We cruise around on our little boat. We think we're the king of the waves. We got that big, awesome sailboat schooner thing. We got our khaki shorts on and the arrogant Dexter shoes and we're just kind of like cruising through life. We think we're in control until, until the storm comes. This is a tipping point storm. This is the thing. This is when it comes. And it's not, it's not when, it's if the storm hits you. And the storm is serious business. You can ask my pastor. You can ask the mom who's waiting on their kids to come home. You can ask yourself about any given time. You're either coming into a storm in the middle of a storm or you're exiting a storm. And that storm is serious business. It's not just there to kind of spook you out. It can take you under. Life will take you under. There, not everybody that, that, that gets cancer is saved on their deathbed. Not everybody sees the curse turn into a blessing because not everybody has faith and not everybody follows the voice. Not everybody follows the way that Noah did. But this is the deal. It's come. It is, it is allowed by God. He doesn't cause people to have cancer. He doesn't cause people. It's not his intent that people would be abused. It's not his intent that you would get sick. It's not his intent that you, your child would run away, run away. That is the chaos waters. That is the flood. That is, the, that is the, the cause of the corruption and the violence and the vindictiveness and the evil of humanity that has come, come around you. That's what they asked Jesus. They said, why is this guy blind? Is it because he sinned or his father sinned? And Jesus says to him, point blank, it's because neither sinned, but this thing's gonna get used to show my glory. So God doesn't make anybody sick, and he didn't cause you to become abused, but he is using it, he's turning it, but here's the imperative. You must trust him in that. You must trust him in that, and that's the imperative. This is what happens when the storm comes. It came as our enemy to kill us, but actually acts as an agent and a vehicle to save us because it forces us to get on the boat. It forces us to get on the boat of Jesus, hunker down, and pull in close to the only thing that's gonna save us. Because without those waves, unless they're big, unless they're mean, unless they're scary, we always think we're king until the waves come. And the waves are sent to show us that God's bigger than the waves that come. And so what the, what the passage is telling us here in this last sentence, as, as I'll read it, is there are tipping points for trust or die. The chaos stories always demand of us, will we trust God? What is it that we will hold on to in the middle of this boat as it begins to sink that we are not allowing ourselves to throw overboard? Jesus says that, that, if, that, if, that if I or if a hand causes us to stumble and, and not be saved, we should chop it off and throw it overboard. This is exactly what it's saying. It's saying that, that the salvation plan, that God has not allowed us to be alone in this chaos problem, in the storm of life, that they continually come and they are allowed to, uh, to be sent to us in this chaotic world. But it's an invitation to trust in Jesus and, and, and hide in him. And this is what, it, what, what it's saying. Is that the blessing, the thing that you need, the provision, the Genesis 1 thing, they are not material. This is where we get the English language is all wrong. I'm going to bless this waiter by tipping them. I'm going to bless this person by giving them, you know, an, a compliment. I'm going to bless this person by encouraging them. That's not what he means by blessing. Blessing is so much deeper than that. Blessing is things like authority. Blessing is things like integrity. Blessing is things that cannot be added up by sentiments or paychecks or, or material things. 
And this is what he's saying is on the boat. It's the animals is the original Genesis 1 and 10. And he's saying trust and hunker down into the boat of Jesus. If you've never been baptized before, this is what the picture is. It is a picture of saying goodbye to everything else in our life. They would come up emerged out of those baptism waters to be saved. And there's no room for anything else on that boat except for the blessing of Jesus. So this is the question that I would ask of you as we close. The intentional question for the, for the week is this. How is Jesus saving you through the chaos waters of your life? I'll read it again. How is Jesus using the chaos waters to save you rather than destroy you? This, the chaos waters were, were formed from the beginning. They were tugged on by the sin and the, and the constant, continual curse of the world. And those flood waters are, they flood on the, on the sinners and the saints. They, they are indiscriminate of who they hit. But in his hands, in Jesus' hands, these things will bring such a, a pressure on us, such, such a desperation and important urgency that wakes us up out of the, the, the lethargy and out of the, the, the slumber and the, the lie and the belief that we can save ourselves and they become bigger than us so that God might become bigger than them. And that becomes the question is, is what, are, what are the chaos waters that have come? They have come. They have come to destroy and they are serious. And anybody here that's maybe forgotten about the seriousness of that is ignoring very important data points on the dashboard. It's either now or it's later. There will be, there will be difficult, difficult times the temptation will be to blame God. The temptation will be to blame others. The temptation will just be to be a Michael Phelps and try to swim out of the thing. And he's saying storms like this don't get swum out of. They only get, they only get saved by, by trusting in the word of the Lord, by following Jesus, by, by walking hand in hand with God. The story in the future will talk about building a faith ahead of time, continually building something, building a faith following directly what God is saying so that we're prepared from when the storms come. The, the storms are, are cruel, they're indiscriminate, and they hit all of us. And so the invitation today would be to trust in him. What is the storm? What is the chaos water? What is the thing that is baiting you, that is challenging you, and maybe tempting you to think that you're bigger than the storm and it's inviting you to get bigger than the storm? That's not the answer. The answer in, in Noah's sense, exactly what this narrative would ask us to do, is, is, to, is to trust God, to do exactly what he says, and to hide ourselves and hide our family away in, in the Jesus salvation. Would you guys stand? I'm going to invite the band to come forward. And, um, and let's just do a little prayer um, as we kind of reflect on this passage and, and move into worship. I wonder how the question hits you. I wonder if I've depressed you before Thanksgiving. It does make us thankful, though. And he doesn't teach us you know, with tough love. That's not his MO. Again, he's grieved about it, right? That's what it says. He's grieved about the situation, but he's also not ignorant of it. And he's in charge and he's sovereign and he's given us choice. And that's opened up the world of problems around us. But what? What is, the, what is it saying? It's that he has not forgotten us. He has not left you alone. He has not left you without a savior. And he has not wasted any of your pain. And this, as in every other moment, is the moment to throw more stuff over the side of the boat that we might huddle in to Jesus. And know before it's too late, and know before it kills us, before it takes us under, before it destroys us, that God is the one that holds us and we can trust him until the very end. I wonder what that is. I wonder what is the wave that you can trust him in. I wonder what is the wave that you can walk out on the water with him 
I wonder what's the way that you can turn down the volume, you might increase his volume in your ear. Whatever it is, I just invite you, as I believe the authority of this scripture invites us to do today, is to forsake everything else, those things that would have been washed away by the flood that we might get on the boat of Jesus. We might get into his boat, leave it all behind and know that everything we need is on that blessing. Everything we need is on that ark floating above the hovers of the deep and we don't need anything else. We don't even need a rudder except to be within the very bowels of the, of the, of the ark of Jesus that we might be saved today. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks again for joining us. If you have been encouraged or challenged by this message, please give us feedback by leaving a comment on this podcast. For more information on our church, visit us at www.citylights.cc.